The following Sunday School session is part of our study of the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So last week, I left you um, in a precarious spot. So we have talked about how we got to this point with the I am coming from the Exodus 3 passage that Jim did for us. Um, the phrase, ego ami, I am that I am, um, doubled up in the, the Greek, I am, and I am uh, in the form of B, I am, uh, are together. They're used a bunch of times in the New Testament. John, in particular, goes out of his way to show us this. It is a feature of the Gospel of John that's pretty much unique. I, I think there was one mention of one of the I am's in another gospel, but John goes out of his way. There's traditionally seven of these that are the I am's that are included with, that have a, um, what you call it, um, included with it, a direct object. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's another Greek grammar word. I'll, I'll think of it in a couple minutes, but they each say I am, and then there's a predicate. predicate thank you. Uh, a predicate that complements that I am. And each one of these seems to be saying, I am God, and uh, therefore this idea of like I'm the bread of life, it is a completion of the bread that you got, the manna from heaven, etc. Right. So that's where this is going. But there's other places where uh, I am is said in this same book, and some of them are just hard to deny that they're uh, statements about the deity of Christ. And so we're going to cover some of those as well, but not all of them. All right, so we're into the I am the light of the world. Right on the heels of I am the bread of life, the pattern seems to be declare I am, and then this um, um, predicate, and then tell what the benefit is that, that believers receive from it. Uh, we got to the point where I said in my studying, I hit this this wall regarding textual criticism, regarding what's called the the paracopa or paracope um, adultere. It's um, the the words that basically mean the paragraph that includes the story of the woman caught in adultery, which stretches from John seven fifty three through John eight one through eleven. And last week when um, we left, I kind of told you that I have my own way of studying. Everybody has their own way of studying, but uh, this is kind of my order. I wanted to determine the full length of the passage that our passage is part of, and then read it a bunch of times in, in that its entirety, so I know its setting. I want to determine what kind of literature it is. Um, hey, guys, come on in. Hey. All right, just back up real quick. So in studying for, for this, I ran into this can of worms about the pericope adultera, which means the, the portion of scripture that deals with a woman caught in adultery. Last week, we talked about the canon. What is the canon? It's those um, passages of text that we accept as inspired of God, infallible, uh, inerrant. And they're included in our Bible. Uh, canon literally means uh, ruler to measure by. Textual criticism, we determined, is a theological science that takes into account languages and archaeology and the findings of uh, text pieces and how they fit in with 
what we know to be the, the text that's out there. It has a kind of an ongoing aspect to it because we keep discovering more and more things. Then there's the last part of this is higher criticism, and it is as it implies. It sits on top of scripture. It's not necessarily a theological science. It's more man saying, I am going to judge scripture and determine if I like it or not. Is kind of how it goes, right? And we come up with our own rationale for why we think things belong or they don't belong. Um, and that's where we left it last week. And I said, let's use this as a teaching time, um, talking about how I go about studying. And, and everybody's got their own method. I try to include hermeneutical principles as I go. But this is sort of my, my path. My path. I look at the passage I've, I've got to deal with. I figure out where does it fit in the larger segment of scripture that it's part of. There's a conversation, there's an event that's going on. The passage that I have, I don't want to just extract it from that. I want it to stay in the set of language that it was part of the conversation. Um, Then I want to determine what kind of of, um, passage it is, what kind of literature it is. Hi, Monica. Uh, Oh, getting back to the first one. Once I determine that uh, passage, I read it over and over again. And I really try, I think this is a super helpful thing, to read it in multiple versions. Because no matter what you say, as English speakers and English readers, we're seeing an, 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 a translation, interpretation of what the original was. Once you've determined um, what your passage is and what kind of literature it is, uh, then you really need to go back and reread the passage with an eye towards context. In hermeneutics, the science of interpretation, context is king. And we're gonna get into that today in depth. Then you want to identify, um, are there language issues? Because, again, this is a different language. It's not the English, and sometimes there's things we don't understand. We have to go back and say, what did the original language mean? After that, we have to say, are there any doctrinal implications to the passage I'm dealing with? Does it change something um, that we believe about the truth, and can you identify that? Next thing is, are there any controversial elements in the passage? And, and that is where I got hung up early in the process. I usually don't find out about them oftentimes until I'm reading commentaries and, and saying, and somebody says, oh, did you know this? And then I'm like, ooh, didn't know that. But this one is one that just jumps out on the page. There are two major uh, pieces of scripture in the New Testament that people um, have a, a real tough time with. And they are this one that's uh, right in front of our passage, and that's uh, John 7, uh, 53 through 8, 1 through 11. And then the other one is uh, Mark 14. So those two passages are, are two that there's lots of discrepancies about, and man, people have written many, many books and spoken many words about those two. Then next, and, and this is purposely kind of what I do unless I get caught up in something, I wait till I've done those things, and then I go and I look at what the commentaries say. As you, you just can't help it if you jump immediately to the commentaries. You have your favorites. People are going to sway you. And I think it's important for us to read the word, try to consider it in the, in the context of the whole of the word, and dig into it. And we may not come up with the right answer right away, but it's, it's a stretching exercise of studying the word, of digging into it that God wants us to do. And it's a great thing for us to do. Then lastly, as you're thinking through these things, find somebody you can bounce your ideas off. Because you could read something into the text 
and think that's it. I saw something new, and we're so, we're so prideful. We we are we are tempted to do that. So have somebody that knows you well and also knows the Word of God. Um, last time I was talking about how Judy is is that person for me a lot. Eugene is also one of those people for me, uh, where I say I got this idea. What do you think? So Eugene and I went and had breakfast about this and. He said, okay, are you done? Did you feel good getting it all out? And I did. <laughs> but uh, it's important to go through this uh, a process when you're studying. All right, so in the process of trying to figure out where this passage sits, I went back and I looked, and you can, you can look this up at your own leisure, but basically a new section starts dealing with Jesus' um, interaction at the, the Feast of Booths. All right, it's a Jewish festival of booths or shelters. Um, the Jewish word for it is sukkah, and um, he starts there. But he, before it even begins at the the feast, it really begins with his brothers saying, "Hey, if you want to be famous, if you want people to see who you are, you should go down there and start doing some miracles and showing off." And he responds to them and says, "Your time is any time." This is not my time. You go on ahead. I'm not going. Then midway through, he sneaks in. It says he goes secretively. And he shows up midway through. Now, if you remember uh, John 6, Eugene did John 6 for us, where Jesus said, uh, I'm the bread of life. And he goes through the whole thing about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And everybody's flipping out. Like, this guy's a cannibal. He's He's nuts. And it says right there that they are after him from that point. A bunch of disciples don't come after him anymore, but the other guys are after him to get him. So he knows that they want to get him, and we're going to see in a few minutes why this would be an ample opportunity for them to do that. So when you look at the passages that talk about the place, you can see that 1 through 5 talk about uh, when he went and where, where he was going. Um, then it says in 14 that it was midway through the festival, so I'm assuming like Wednesday, um, maybe Tuesday, but probably Wednesday, he shows up in the temple and starts preaching. And then it tells us in uh, John 8.20 specifically where in the temple he was, and he was at. He was in what was known as the treasury section, which was in the court of the women. So there was an inner portion that women weren't allowed to go to, but the outer one the women could go to, and they also had these big uh, receptacles for money. And so you would give your tithes and offerings there, and that was probably the most populous part of the temple. When people came to the temple, everybody was there. All right, so that, this one helps us in context and tells us when, where, who. It even gives us ideas of what the focus was, and that it says what Jesus said and who he was speaking to, and then... John does a really good job of interpreting for us and saying, he meant this, right? So when he says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and I'll give you living water. Do you remember what happened right after that? John gives commentary and he's got a paren right in there where he said, but Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit whom he hadn't given yet because Jesus had not gone, uh, gotten, been glorified yet. So John gives us commentaries. It makes it a little tough sometimes when you're reading John because it's not clear when it's Jesus speaking and when it's John speaking. Uh, John 3.16 could be a John comment and not Jesus' words. There's some of that that happens and you have to really sift through that and think about it. 
All right, so we can know from this that it's, uh, you know, the about the second day that Jesus has been teaching when he stands up and says, the, I'm the light of the world one, because the first one is where he says, I've got this living water, and then it says the next day he stands up. Well, it, it says in the passage that is a discrepancy, the discrepancy passage. It says that he stands up, and that's when he says, I'm the light of the world. That passage kind of ends and at verse 20, and there seems to be a gap before the 21 through the 58 passage where it gets really, really heated. That's the one where the Pharisees are going for the jugular and Jesus is pulling no punches. He tells them, you guys are children of the devil. And at the very end, he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's that passage. So this one precedes that. So now we kind of have the framework of where it all sits. Any thoughts or comments on that so far? I'm trying to go fast because I got a lot to cover today. All right. So in the discussion about what kind of language it is, I talked about this a little bit last week. I'll briefly say this is historical narrative. It's not apocryphal writing. It's not prophetic writing, although it describes uh, fulfillments of prophecies. There is some figurative language. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he is not saying, I am illumination in the material world sense. Right? Just like the week before, he said, um, I'm the bread of life. He is not wheat bread. Right? Everybody knows that. Right? So there's hyperbolic and allegorical language in there. John is very, very focused on how Jesus fulfills the prophetic prophecies, for lack of a better term, about what the Messiah was going to be, who he was going to be, what would he bring to the table. So now, you, when you go back and you read in context, there's a bunch of things about context. It's kind of like a reporter, you know, you want to know the who, why, what, when, where kind of stuff. Um, that kind of involves the setting. What's the time, the place, you know, the broader, broader historical setting. Then are there cultural things? Like, this happened in a time that isn't like our culture. And we make that mistake so often as Westerners. We read our culture into what's in the Bible. And I think a lot of times we misunderstand what's being said because we haven't done the homework to say, well, what would they have understood in the context of the setting that they're in culturally? Next one. How is this... Um, text affected by the passages immediately before and after it. That's where I got hung up. Um, who was present at the event? At present at the event? Was this public or private? Um, who was Jesus directing his words to? Um, then the next one, uh, did the author John write about this same topic elsewhere? Um, who was the original audience of the, the Gospel of John and how would they have understood this as they read it? And then where does this whole thing fit in the historic redemptive arc? So when you look at the, um, the context, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Now we've all heard these terms, but until you dig in, you kind of really don't know what they're talking about. So in general, anybody know what the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles were? Go ahead, It's a commemoration of their time in the wilderness when they were camping in the tents. Camping they would in the go into the square in the midst of the city, and they would build these uh, booths. We used to do it in homeschool for the kids. To oh, teach. really? Yeah, we'd go to the park and put together these lean tools and go through the whole thing. 
Now, they, they call it sukkah, and they still do it today. And this is one of what they call three pilgrim feasts. And I didn't realize this until I studied into this. I should have over the years. But basically, all Jewish males were required to participate in three specific festivals, right? And this is one of those. That meant no matter where you lived in Israel, you're going to pack up and at least the, the male has to go to Jerusalem and be part of the ceremony. More often than not, like this one is a, a feast basically of the harvest. They're celebrating that there's a, a new harvest in and they're excited. They bring their families. So on the right, you got a picture of a caravan. And if you think about it, that's the context in which Joseph and Mary took Jesus down to Jerusalem when he was a teenager. And then when they're going back home in this caravan, they lost him for a couple of days. It's because all the males where they lived and the cities along the way often took their families and they went down there. It's a giant festival. I mean, people are truck walking down in big groups. So many of the family members of Joseph and Mary would have been there along the way. So they would have said, oh, he's with his cousins or, you know, that sort of thing. And this was a regular thing for the Jews. They would go and travel to Jerusalem and do this. This particular feast had some uh, interesting parts to it. So they, every day, had part of their feast that had to do with water, remembering that God provided water to sustain the Jews in the wilderness. And the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, a special pitcher, he'd get water from there, he'd take it back into the temple, and he'd pour it into the basins um, by the altars. With that ceremony happening every morning of this, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone's thirsty, he may come to me and drink. Uh, come to me, and I'm going to give him uh, living water. So it's, it's clear he's saying this in light of the fact that this is happening in front of their eyes. They're remembering that God provided water for them. He's saying, I'm going to give you the real living water. Now, again, John comments on this and tells us he's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That in the New Covenant, everybody who comes to Christ is going to get the Holy Spirit living within them. It also harkens back to the woman at the well conversation. When Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you could have asked and I would have given you living water. right? So the, the stories are intertwined. There's a flow of these things. They, they all have a combined meaning together as we're going. Getting to ours... If you looked at this um, this festival, they had an aspect of it that was called the illumination of the temple. They had these 40-foot high, four of them, um, lanterns that each had four uh, lanterns on top of them, and they were oil-fed, and they would light them up. And remember, they don't have electricity. I mean, at night, you got fire, it's from a torch. But these things are 40 feet high, they're illuminating the entire temple, and since the temple is at one of the highest spots in Jerusalem, they're illuminating the town around them. And people said they shined like a star in the desert when these lights were lit. This was to remind them that God led them in the wilderness by a pillar of fire and of smoke. But the thing that was so sad about this was that it used to be when the tabernacle was there and the first temple was there, 
the glory of God rested on it, and people would visibly see the Shekinah glory of God over it. R.C. Sproul wrote this. Can anybody read that bottom part there, the R.C. Sproul one? Here's a supreme irony. In 586 B.C., Ezekiel saw the glory of, the, of God leave the temple and ascend to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. At the triumphal entry, the one who the scripture defines as the brightness of God's glory descended from the Mount of Olives, entered the east gate, and went to the temple. In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the temple, but when Jesus came, the glory of God came back. No one understood the King of Glory was in their midst. And Oh, about to meet the destiny uh, for, to which he was called. So Sproul said that. So we are to gather from this, if we just stopped here and said, okay, in the context of the setting of the Feast of Booze, what are we getting out of this? Jesus is hearkening to the imagery from that time, and we would say that he is telling us he is the provider of all that we need for sustenance in the water, and there's a new form of this sustenance that's coming in the Holy Spirit, and he's the light that we're supposed to follow. I mean, think about what that, that light and that pillar did. It showed them where to go. It told them when to stop. It was a warning to others. If they came around the Jews, you see a million people camped out, and they see this giant pillar of smoke during the day, or at night, a giant light. People were freaked out about this. They knew, stay away from this. Because think about when the um, Egyptians came after the Jews. What did the pillar do? It got between them and the Jews. It stood right there between the Egyptians and the Jews. said, oh yeah? You want some of this? I don't think you do. This was a visual manifestation of God leading and protecting his people. Showing them the way to the promised land. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And if we just stopped here, we'd say, he's going to show us the way to glory all the way through this life, the path we're supposed to take. He'll tell us when to go, when to stop, but he's going to take us to glory. He's going to take us to heaven. It's just not a promised land. He's taking us all the way there. It's That was symbolic. This is the real deal. We got a lot of things covered in just going through those things. And then I got to this point where it says, how is the text affected by the passage immediately before and after it? So uh, the Pericope adulteria, it's off the page, sorry, is this story about uh, the woman caught in adultery brought by the Pharisees to try to trip Jesus up and what he says. And we're all very familiar with this story. It, it, it amazed me, and just listening to podcasts this week by different uh, people, mostly Christians, some not Christians, this whole thing about the woman caught in adultery is referenced a lot, a lot by Christians. So, the problem is, is that the best manuscripts that we have um, do not have it in it. The earliest, most reliable ones don't have it in it. So, what do you do with that? And if you look in your Bibles, you'll, you'll probably note, uh, unless you're the King James, that sometimes they put it in a bracket, sometimes they italicize it and put uh, asterisks, sometimes they take it out of the text and put it down at the bottom in the notes and say what I've just said to you. Now, I don't, I don't know personally, and I, I haven't 
come to a conclusion of what you ought to do with it as far as where it sits in your Bible. I still think it stays in the Bible. But um, this threw me. So if this is part of this, and it comes directly before Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, what could it be saying about light? Not, not a rhetorical question. Well, you, I, we're assuming, first of all, that the Pharisees were genuine, that the, the woman really was caught in the world. Their intention that, yeah. is to trip up Jesus. He sees that as a far worse crime than her crime. They have an intention to destroy him. He sees that. He knows their mind, right? So he's going right after them, as he continues to do through the passage. Now, we have the Bishop Unger, or one of those guys back there, who cut this up uh-huh. into sections. Right, right. So we don't even know if it's in the proper section. It could be part of the previous, or somewhere. So we're, we're, we're straining at gnats here, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you assume that this should be in the text... And it literally comes right before Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You would look at that and you'd say, it impacts that text. It's going to impact the meaning. Jesus stands up immediately after and says, he says to the people, I'm the light of the world. Right after this, this thing. So what could he mean there? Well, you just told us what he meant. He meant that I am the column of fire. I am the light that we have in the festival. I am that that light. Well, I, I said that I said that from the setting that he was speaking in, yeah. right? But when you put this right in front of what he said, it doesn't be, seem to be saying, uh, "I'm the column of light that you follow." Oh. There's a different impact of of what this means. Isn't it kind of like well, again, like First John, like one five through seven, just like the like the beauty of what it means to live in the truth and in the light, and then through that. Like you are redeemed in righteousness through Christ, and like we kind of get that. Yeah, when he says like, "Neither do I, like kill and sin no more." Like you're now in my body, like you're with me, and like you can live righteously because of me. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? There are moral implications that this brings out. This one isn't just saying, "Follow me this direction." This one is spelling out something about darkness and light. These guys bring this woman in a contrived situation. I mean, everybody in the room knows it takes two to tango, and the Old Testament was very clear if two people are caught in adultery, um, they are to be brought forward, and in the case of a woman who was um, a a virgin that was promised for married, they were to be stoned. That was the particular setting for the stoning. These guys bring bring her here, and her partner is missing. Number one, that that's clearly a problem, right? And they want him to stone her. Why? How is that tripping Jesus up? Why? Why is that a trick that they're playing on him? Because they want him to. They can't stone him. Only the Romans can execute him. And uh, he would be, in essence, messing up the authority of the Romans, and they can accuse him of insurrection. Exactly. So the Romans conquered people and then gave them a measure of autonomy below the Romans. They were called vassal states. And one of the things the Romans denied those states was uh, capital punishment. 
So it explains why they wanted to take Jesus to Pilate, because they couldn't kill him themselves. They weren't allowed to. And these guys come and they say, the law says, Moses says, if these people are caught, or this person's caught in adultery, she's to be stoned. What do you say? He's in a loop. They're trying to put him in a lose loop. Yes. Because if he doesn't, he's doing it incorrectly according to the law. And if he doesn't do it, he's not following the law. Right. So they think they've got this total lockup here. He right. can't get out of this one no matter what he does, right? Yeah. And there's this whole thing about him turning uh, and ignoring them and looking down and writing in the dirt. And it literally says, with his finger, he wrote in the dirt. It doesn't say what he wrote. And there have been books written on what he wrote. It's really not worth going there. But there is something really important to note. They they push him even farther and say, well, what does the law say? What, what should we do? And he turns to them and says... Whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And then he bends down and writes in, in the sand in the dirt again. This time it doesn't say with his finger. It's an exact match to God's referring to how he wrote the law. Mm-hmm. It first references he wrote it with his finger, literally his finger, and the second one says he wrote it. So somebody, uh, I'd argue the Holy Spirit would be really good at this, has put some stuff in here that matches what happened in the old. In this instance, I think it's pretty straightforward to say that Jesus illuminates the situation. He shows what the right way is, and he shows the people who are in darkness. And they walked away, each one of them, because they knew they didn't have um, a, a perfect... Uh, ability to pick up a stone and and throw it at her because each one of them had sin. So Jesus illuminates the situation for what it was, shows them their sin, and then shows them the right way of proceeding with grace. So if you include the sin, it impacts your view. Now, I would argue that no matter what, you're still going to have the view that Jesus is the pillar of light that we're to follow because that's the setting when he stands up there it's in light of the candelabras, pun intended, and he means for them to think about that, and and ultimately, uh, we should follow him. So, when you sit and you think, well, all right, what are the reasons for canonicity? I found a um, an article on the Gospel Coalition that somebody had done a studious study of this, and um, and I did those words together on purpose. And these were the reasons that they say people over time have said this belongs in there. So basically, um, some people say it was in the original text of John's Gospel. And our problem is not that it couldn't have been, it's that our archaeological record of the portions of text that we have don't include it in the oldest manuscripts. It's a it's a little more complicated than that in the sense that there are no references by any of the church fathers um, that reference this passage. The the second generation of people that were disciples of the apostles, they were writing commentaries on scripture, and none of them comment on this passage. All right, um, some say, well, it's in the the text tradition, so it's been delivered to us, and it's been there, and so we accept it. And I think there's a lot of good argument behind that. 
Some say that spirit-guided ecclesiology, meaning the church accepted this and has embraced it over time. Some say that the spirit attests to it, and that would get down to, we all know what it's like to be forgiven by Christ. We resonate with this. This is a, a, a dear passage to a lot of us. Because we know what it's like to be forgiven of sin. <clears throat> Some will say it's historical and orthodox. And, you know, the t- period of time they would say it showed up around uh, 1200 AD. And from that point forward, it's been in there and nobody's argued against it in a sense that would pull it out of the text that we have in our Bibles. Some would say its form um, is authoritative. It is like what the rest of scripture is like and therefore canonical. And then others would say it's apostolic, meaning it it appears to have actually happened in that time and you can make a very credible argument that it happened in that period. And so the answer there is accept it and preach it. Okay, so the arguments against, I've already said a bunch of them. Um, the oldest most reliable manuscripts don't well, have it. William. Yes. The ahead. second oldest manuscript in existence is in the Vatican Library. And it has been copied over. <laughs> they had um, to dig under it to find what they thought was older, right? The fragments of the, the oldest manuscripts precede that uh, by, by lots of time. And no, it there's doesn't one even, older than that one. And it was found in a monastery in the Sinai. The oldest ones are in Egypt. The preponderance of manuscripts come from the area around where they were written originally. It, it's just crazy. Everybody accepts older is better. But if you park a car in your garage, and you never drive it, and you never go anywhere in it, and you use the other car to do everything, that car is going to wear out. The other car is going to look shiny and new, Right? So if you've got this thing folded up and it's stuck under the pulpit to keep it from rocking, you know, maybe it's going to look better than the other one, right? All I'm saying, Jim, and, and I'm not arguing for this at all. Trust me on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the argument people are giving is that it didn't show up uh, in the manuscripts until 1200 AD, and then it found its way into Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the textual criticism of this. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of it where no, no church fathers quote it is more problematic than the text. Because I, I could argue with the text, um, the Muslims, when they went through in the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire and went through all of the northern African areas and the Mediterranean, they purposely sought to destroy the manuscripts that we had. Who knows what great treasure trove of actual manuscripts we would have had if they hadn't consciously gone there and destroyed them. All I'm saying is that these are the reasons these people give. All right, so if you were to accept that view, what do you do with this, right? And there's these kind of options. People say, skip it, um, don't even consider it. That's one one thing. Some people say, use it as an opportunity to talk about textual criticism and how we're honest about what we have and blah, 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 blah. Um, the next one is say it's non-canonical, but that it's true historically and it can weigh in on the text. It was a true story, but ne- not necessarily canonical. <laughs> Moving into the apocrypha. Right. Yeah. Sort of, right? Um, 
And then the last one is kind of, it's benign. It's a benign expansion. It doesn't contradict anything. So just use it illustratively. All right, so that's where the, the academics sit on this one. Now, when I thought about it, it's kind of a spectrum, right? You, so you could, got your first part that nobody argues about, John uh, 7, 1 through 52. And then you, if you exclude it, you jump right to John 8, uh, 12 through 20. But there's really two camps, exclude or include. And some of our favorite people are there, and I have them in the spectrum from the top of the people who say excluded all the way to the bottom who say included. Um, I love to listen to other people preach on the things that I'm going to talk on, and my first inkling that there was a big problem was John MacArthur and Steve Lawson in separate sermons said, this isn't in the original text, don't even bother with it. They both said that, just came right out and said that, and I went, whoa, that really threw me. There is a, a fella who gets referenced a lot named uh, Bruce Metzger, and he was a, um, a language expert. He's no longer alive, and he's kind of towards the top there in the center, and he basically said it's not in the earliest manuscripts, but it appears that this really happened in the ministry of Jesus, so let it influence your thinking. That was what he said. D.A. Carson, who's one of my theological heroes, kind of said the same thing. He said it's absent in the, in the ancient Greek manuscripts. And then he literally says, on the other hand, there's little reason for doubting that the event occurred. John Piper kind of jumped on there and said, I agree with Metzger and Carson. Um, <laughs> it's a real story, but it's not in scripture. Calvin, Calvin uh, basically said it was unknown to the Greek churches, but it was always in the Latin churches. Uh, he said that it contains nothing that's unworthy of the apostolic spirit. So he said there's no reason that we shouldn't make use of it. I found uh, William Hendrickson was particularly helpful. Um, he, he said the story fits well in the context. The picture of Christ here fits what we see of the picture of Jesus in other places. Um, John's disciple, a fellow named Papias, he knew about this passage or he knew about the story. He didn't say it was part of John. He knew about the story, and he expounded on the story. Augustine, this is what Hendrickson conveyed, Augustine said, definitively, people removed it from the scripture. And he expanded on that a little bit. He said that they were in a time of aestheticism back then, and they felt that if you leave this in, it looks like Jesus is wink, wink, nod, nod, adultery's okay, women. And they thought, this is bad. We're going to have women committing adultery and saying, we can do that because Jesus let that woman go. And that was, a, that was a real thing people were saying. And Augustine said there was a movement of people who didn't like it for that reason, and they extracted it. That's what Augustine said. I liked what um, Hendrickson said towards the end of that one. He said, we believe that uh, what here took place, what is here took place, and nothing's in conflict with the apostolic spirit. Instead of removing it from the Bible... It should be re retained. The one that was the real kicker for me was R.C. Sproul. He took the position that it's been in the, the canon for over X amount of years. The church has accepted. God maintains that, that process sovereignly. So preach it. It's part of the Word of God. I'm going to, to teach it just like any other part of the Word of God. That was what he said. So 
I'm kind of in the middle. I probably am where uh, Hendrickson is. There was a more esoteric ex- uh, explanation of this by a guy named uh, Klink, the book that Ed gave me. And he basically said there's, there's two ways to look at it. There's a material way and a functional way. And he's not talking about materialism. The material way talks about fragments of scripture, the, that process of textual criticism. And he said there, there is reason to doubt whether it belongs in there. But functionally... How it serves in the story of the scripture, it seems completely aligned with the rest of scripture. It doesn't contradict anything in there at all, and it complements the story. And I thought that's a good way to think of it. And whatever you think about the material aspect of it, of textual criticism, unless you're going into higher criticism, that's, that's one of those things that none of us in this room are experts and it's all, that's always going to be tough for us. So we can dig into this kind of stuff, but I think we need to trust that, that God has provided what we need. And sometimes we just have to stop and say, I am not that expert. And it's okay. It's okay. And that's why we pay Ed to study and study and study. I, I tell you when, you, when you dig in and you try to present the Word of God to somebody, it's a frightening thing. I mean, I'm looking at Monica because I know she leads women's Bible studies. Whoever you are, when you stand up and you say, here's what the Word of God says, you want to study and know what it actually says. And it's fearful. It's fearful to handle the Word of God. So when we come to these things, dig in, study, go find out, and lean hard over time on the people who know more than we do and came before us and dealt with the same things and look what as many of them say as possible and weigh it against what the scripture says you know that the the parameter of higher criticism is not where you want to go you don't want to be caught judging the word of god don't don't go there it is it's wrong and every time people have gone there it perverts what the word of god says and it's bad all right, so we went through this whole thing and, and looked at the context. I have a couple more things to say. Um, did the author speak of this in other places? And very quickly, John uses the theme of light a lot. He opens in his um, prologue with this whole discussion of the Word who was God coming in. And he says, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. There's a cosmos kind of feel about this light. So just think about it for a moment. If we didn't have light, we would not have life. Right? All of the plants do photosynthesis. Photo is the light, the photoluminance. Our water cycle is driven by the heat of the sun on the water and the spin of the earth. We measure time by how many times... How how long does it take us to circle the sun? The light is set right in the middle of our solar system, and it gives life to us. So in a spiritual sense, God is that light, and Jesus is the full manifestation of God. He is that central, um, cosmos, spiritually speaking, light. And he came into the world to show that he was that illuminance. Um. He, he references that again in, in John 3, after the um, John 3.16 passage. But he basically says, I didn't come into the world to judge it, but I'm here and I'm light, and the world can't help it. 
they don't want to be near the light because mm-hmm. it exposes them. And it's going to be happening while I'm here. I'm going to illuminate their sin, and they're not going to like it. But everybody who does love me will come into the light. Um, he goes on, and he talks about the light being uh, an illumination of our path. You don't have to wander in darkness. Like if um, One time I remember um, Sam and Monica and Steve and Denise and Judy and I went uh, down to Temecula, and we stayed at a place, and the hotel we stayed in had the weirdest room I ever saw. It was room inside of the hotel that had no windows. It had a door and no windows. And it's inside this thing, right? And when you got in there and you turned the light off, it was pitch black. And there's something weird about pitch black. When you're in your own bedroom and you're going to bed, there's a little bit of light that's coming in. It might be your alarm clock. It might be through your windows. But... Um, when you're in a thing that's enclosed like that and it's dark, there is something that's really troubling about being in complete darkness. And before Jesus came into the world, people were roaming around in complete darkness other than those whom God had brought the light of the law and the light of his person to the Jews. The rest of the world was in complete darkness. When you hear about the things they were doing, human sacrifices and stuff, it makes sense because they were completely in the dark. But Jesus illuminates the path. So there's another one of the John things. When you look at his um, extra um, beyond the gospel writings, First John, I think, uh, John, you mentioned that earlier. There's discussions of light. If you say you're in Christ, and you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you show you're still in the darkness. There's no darkness in God at all. Think about that. Darkness can't put out light. Light light will eliminate darkness. It, that's a function of light. Light can't be overcome by darkness. Darkness is overcome by light. And there's no darkness in God at all. At all. And if we say we're part of him, we need to be in that light. And then the final manifestation of that is in glory. And also in another one of John's writings. The final new heavens and earth comes down. And there's not going to be a need for a sun or a moon anymore. Because Jesus will be the light of that new world for all eternity. I, I take by that it means we're not going to get tired either. We're not going to get. We're not going to have to have naps because we will be in these new bodies, and it will all be always be daytime, and it will always be wonderful. Summary: I think it's additive. I think that the the discussion we had of. The Festival of the Booths speaks to the overall context and we're to follow Jesus like the pillar of light. He's going to show us what's dark and he's going to show us where to go. (laughs) And he's going to tell us how to behave on the way to where we're going. And ultimately he will be that light that we'll bask in for the rest of of eternity. It's cumulative. I don't think there's anything that the uh, pericope adultery pulls away from this. I think it's just additive. It's a wonderful story showing what the grace of God is about as opposed to heartless uh, works that want to compare and, and punish each other by the law. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday School session on the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.com dot o r g